0: How are you doing today? Good. Well, I'm glad uh, to see you. Glad to be with you. I am uh, Jeff Surratt. I'm one of the pastors here at Seacoast and uh, glad you're along today. I want to say hi to all of you who are maybe at one of our other campuses or in one of our venues in the chapel or in the warehouse or maybe you are watching on the internet. We are glad that you are with us. So I'm going to start today with a little audience participation. What do you hate to do? You can call it out. What do you hate to do? Anyone? Taxes. Somebody said taxes. Somebody said go to the dentist. Somebody said mow the lawn. Here's what I hate to do the most of all of those things. I hate to wait. I just cannot stand waiting. Anybody with me on that? Anyone else? Hate to wait. I just can't stand it. Whether it's in a, a doctor's office or at the DMV. But I've got to tell you, I think the place that I hate to wait, hate to wait the most is at airport terminals. In fact, not just airport terminals, but when you are flying somewhere and you have to connect, I hate that because when you're connecting, you're neither in your, at your destination nor are you at home. You're in a place called Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I hear that there's a city called Atlanta. I've never seen it. All I know is the airport there. In fact, one time I was flying back from from somewhere and trying to get home to Charleston, and I wound up in Atlanta at the airport, went to the gate, uh, had about a two-hour layover, and on the screen it said, Delayed. So we waited a little while, and then they changed the time, and they changed the time, and changed the time, and then they change the gate, which I think they do just to see the monkeys run, you know? And so we all jump up and we run and we go get on the train and we go to the next gate and we sit down and they put up the word on the screen that every seasoned traveler hates. And what is that word? Canceled. That's right. It was now 1.30 in the morning and they had, I'd been there for five hours and they canceled our flight. And I've never seen this happen before. The airline employees literally got up from behind the desk, and took off running down the terminal. And we take off running after them. They duck out a side door, and there we are at Atlanta-Hartsfield Airport, one thirty in the morning, and we are stuck. We are neither at our destination nor are we home. We're in between. I hate that. Sometimes we can wind up in places like that in life, though, can't we? Maybe some of you feel like you're in a long-term waiting room right now. Maybe you are a, a mom with young children at home and it feels like your life has been put on hold. You love your children, but it seems like that's all you do is take care of the kids and it seems like a waiting room. Or maybe you have wanted to be married all of your life and you, you, you never have reached that destination and it can feel like a waiting room or you might be in a job that feels like a dead-end job and it seems like you went to college and got a degree just so you can tell the difference between vinté and Grande and it's like, I, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. How long am I going to be stuck here? Or you may have a health situation that you've been praying for healing and nothing seems to change and it it feels like you're in a waiting room, just waiting for what's next. Well, that's what we want to talk about today is what do you do in a waiting room? When you get stuck in a loop in life, what do you do? Before we dive into that, would, would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you for incredible privilege of being able to share today. Lord, it's always a humbling experience just to um, try to present your word and try to speak your truth. And so, Lord, I pray again today that you will speak through me, that you will use my words to impact people. So, Lord, I just pray that the next few minutes that you'll show up and that we can learn from you. And Lord, I ask it in your name. Amen. You know, an interesting thing as you go through the Bible you'll find that waiting rooms are a frequent um, occurrence. In fact, every major character of the Bible that I can think of went through an extended period of waiting in their life. If you go back to Genesis, you look at Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have more children than there are pebbles of sand on the beach. And yet Abraham had to wait until he was over 100 years old before he had his first child. Moses, one of the greatest leaders we've ever known, waited for 40 years in a desert for God to fulfill his promise to Moses. Joseph had a dream that he was going to be a leader, that he was going to lead his own family. And then he waited 23 years to see that dream fulfilled. And most of those 23 years were spent either as a slave or in prison. You look at Jesus' life. Do you realize that Jesus' life the first 30 years was a waiting room? He knew that he was sent from God. He knew that he had a mission, but he waited for 30 years. And then when the mission began, the first 40 days of his mission, the first month and a half was spent by himself in a desert still waiting. We see waiting rooms throughout the Bible. We're in a series called Arrested. We're looking at the latter part of the book of Acts uh, from the time Paul is arrested and, and, until he is set free um, or until he travels um, And it's a time of waiting for Paul. In fact, if we go back to Acts 21, just a quick review. We go back to Acts 21. Paul's in Jerusalem, and the Jews they are upset with Paul, and so they want to catch him doing something wrong. They can't catch him, and so they make up some charges and they arrest Paul, and they bring Paul uh, into their their little court, and they uh, begin to try to kind of try him. It's kind of a it's it's not even really a formal court situation, and so. Paul says, well, let me explain. And so he tells them his story. As he's telling them his story, Paul uses the first magic word, and that is the word Gentile. He says that God sent me to bring the good news to the Gentiles. And the Jews go nuts. They want to rip him apart. The Romans actually come in and they save, save Paul's life and they take him into custody. And so they take him into custody and while he's in custody, um, the next day they take him and they took him to take him to the formal Jewish court where the high priest is there, or the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And there, Paul says, magic, number, magic word number two, he says, resurrection. He says, some of you guys don't believe in resurrection. Some of you do. I know resurrection is true. I saw Jesus raised from the dead. And once again... Bedlam breaks out. They're screaming. They're yelling. And so the Romans, again, they take Paul back into custody. They put him in a jail cell. They say, probably, we don't know this, but they probably say, Paul, could you not say the magic words? Because that's causing us some problems. You know what I'm saying? So Paul finds out through his nephew while he's in this jail cell that the Jews have a plot that they're going to break him out of jail or when when they take him out of jail the next day, they're going to kill him. And so they send Paul with a huge guard to another town, to Caesarea. Caesarea is kind of the county seat for where, where uh, um, Jerusalem is. And so they send him to Caesarea there for, to the governor, to, to go before the governor named Felix. When he gets there, the Jews come up from Jerusalem. Now, this has been going on for a couple of weeks now. Paul's been arrested. They bring him up, they, they go before Felix, and, and Sean talked about this last week. In Acts 24, he has his trial in front of Felix, and the Jews give their trumped-up charges, and Felix listens, and he goes, I don't, I don't, I don't, get, I don't get the deal. This, this doesn't seem, seem to be a big deal. What's going on here? He says, well, let me hang on to Paul for a while. So he sends the Jews back to Jerusalem and he hangs on to Paul. And Felix seems to take a liking to Paul. I think probably Felix is kind of a quasi-intellectual and he knows that Paul is intellectual. And so he likes to come and he brings his wife and they go down all the time and they, they have discussions with Paul. And Felix lets this go on for two years, two years. Paul is sitting and just waiting. And what's really going on is Felix wants Paul to pay him a bribe, but Paul has ethics and he won't do that he won't he won't pay the bribe so he sits for two years so when chapter 25 which is our chapter for this week opens up um felix is gone we don't know what happened to felix but there's a new governor and his name's festus i love the name festus do we have any people who remember gunsmoke old guys like me do you remember Festus on gunsmoke? Acts 25 is a lot more interesting if you just put that Festus in this Festus place. And they're a lot alike. I mean, they're about the same level of intelligence if you remember Festus on gunsmoke. So Festus, he becomes the governor, and the first thing he does as governor is he goes to Jerusalem. And when he's in Jerusalem, some Jews come and they say, Festus, when you get to Caesarea, there's a guy that you're holding there named Paul, and we've got some stuff we need to deal with him. He's been held for a couple of years. If you'll just send him back down to Jerusalem right now, we'll get this whole thing taken care of. Well, Festus didn't realize that they were going to kill Paul on the road, but Festus says, You know what, guys? I got a better idea you guys come up to Caesarea. I'm going to be up there next week. We'll have a party. You'll come. We'll hang out. We'll bring Paul in. We'll do a trial. It'll be great. And so he does. About eight days later, he gets to Caesarea. He calls Paul in. It's been two years now, but the Jews come up to Caesarea, same trumped up charges, no more truth to them than there was before. And Festus goes, guys, Sounds like you guys can work this out. Why don't I just send Paul back down to Jerusalem? You guys figure this deal out. Well, Paul knows that if he, if he, if he goes back to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to kill him. Paul says magic word number three. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. That is the ultimate magic word. Festus says, okay, you appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. He sends the Jews back to Jerusalem. He says, Paul, we're going to send you to Rome. We're going to send you to Caesar. Festus has a problem, though. He doesn't have any charges against Paul. The stuff the Jews said doesn't make sense. Imagine this. Imagine being a district attorney and coming before a judge and saying, Judge, this is Bob. We have no charges against Bob. Do you think Bob's guilty or innocent? That's, what, that's, the, that's the problem Festus had. He says... I've got to figure out what to charge this guy with. Well, there's a, another guy coming to town named King Agrippa, and, and his, wife, his wife is coming with him. And the king is kind of a puppet king over this whole area. And Festus wants to get in good with the new king. And so he says, hey, king, why don't you come over tonight, and we'll have dinner, and I'll bring this guy Paul in. He's a lot of fun to talk to. I'll have him tell you, tell you his story, and then maybe you can help me come up with what, we, what charges we write when we send this guy off to Caesar. And so at the end of Acts 25, Paul comes in and uh, Festus says, Paul, tell King Agrippa your story. Now, Paul has told his story and he's told his story and he's told his story and he's told his story and it keeps going on and it's gone on for weeks and months and now it's been two years and he's doing it again. Did You guys ever see the movie, old movie with Bill Murray called Groundhog Day? You ever see that? Paul is living out Groundhog Day. He is having the same day again and again. It's like Paul is permanently in Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so so what do you do when you get stuck in a loop like that? What do you do in a waiting room? Well, I told you I hate waiting. I hate waiting rooms. And so I've become an expert of what not to do while waiting. So I want to give you three things that will help you. If you want to be miserable while you wait... I've come up with three ways to be miserable while you wait, all right? The first thing you do to be miserable is to worry. Just spend a lot of time worrying. Some worry-starting questions are, why is nothing happening? Why isn't God moving? Why are good things happening to other people and not happening to me? If you can focus on those questions, you'll become miserable, okay? Um, Jesus said, this is a great scripture. Jesus said, uh, who of you, by worrying, can add one moment to your own life? If you can't even do such a little thing as that, what is the point of continuing to worry? You know, when you think about it, worry is just a waste of time. It doesn't change the outcome, no matter what. It just makes you miserable. I love what Paul says. Uh, I think it's in Philippians about worry. Paul says this, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. You see, all worry does in a waiting room is it just makes you miserable. The second thing uh, uh, about that, that can make you miserable while you wait is stress. Is stress, And what I mean by stress is feeling like you've got to make something happen. I'm going to bang on every door. I'm going to rattle every window. I'm going to call everybody I can. I, we will get this done. I will make something happen. I was at another airport uh, in a terminal waiting. The plane was delayed as they always are and, and a bunch of us are waiting. And there was a lady a few feet away and she was on a phone. And we all knew who she was talking to because people two terminals away could hear her. She's talking to a ticket agent of the airline that we were waiting for. And she is letting this person know how unacceptable this delay is. And something has to happen. And she has to be in such and such city and the veins are popping out on her neck and, the, and, and, and sweat beads are popping up on her head and she is just angry and agitated and irritated. And she says, we've well, got to do something about this. And here's what happened. I sat down. I dread my magazine. I drank my Diet Coke. I relaxed. And guess what? That lady and I and everyone else got on the same airplane at the same time and arrived at the other destination exactly at the same time. The only difference was she was stressed out. We weren't. You understand what I'm saying? All stress usually does in a waiting room, again, is it makes you miserable. Jesus is. Um, with some friends. You guys know this story. He's hanging out with, with, with a couple of friends, Mary and Martha. And uh, he comes in and, and Mary says, Jesus, it's great to see you. Have a seat. Mary pops down on the couch. Jesus sits in the easy chair. Mary says, What's going on? Tell me what's going on in your life and hanging out with the disciples. And, oh man, tell me about one of the healings that you did. And, and she just learns and listens to Jesus. Meanwhile, Martha's going, we have got to have bread. We've got to have coffee. The bathroom needs to be clean. The door seals need to be done. The lawn needs to be mowed. We've we we got to mop the floor. This is ridiculous. And so she's doing all these things and putting bread in and she's mopping and she finally has had it. She comes into Jesus and says, Jesus, you have got to do something about Mary. She is sitting here. She's not doing anything. She's not helping. She's just sitting. And I love what Jesus does. He says, Martha, Can't you just hear his voice? Martha, Martha, Martha. (laughs) He says, you're agitated. You're worried. You're stressed out about so many different things. He says, Mary has chosen the better. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying, stress isn't helping anything. It's just getting you fired up. It's raising your blood pressure. It's making you miserable now if you really want to be miserable it, while you wait worry stress third thing you can do is just is complain complain as much as you can as loud as you can to as many people as you can just complain 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 um let me tell you what complaining is like complaining is like getting uh, poison ivy when you get poison ivy what do you want to do you want to scratch it don't you so finally you give in and you scratch and it's great it feels good oh that's so much better And as soon as you stop scratching, what happens? It gets worse, doesn't it? That's what complaining does while I wait. It feels good. I get it off my chest. I wind everybody around me. I can't believe I have had to wait an hour or a year or five years. And nothing's changed. And I complain, I complain, I complain. And it just makes it worse. James gives us a great perspective on uh, uh, waiting. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, a few months ago, I was in a period of time in my life where where I was in a waiting room. I felt like God was kind of giving me some direction, but I didn't know what the direction was. And I was praying, I was talking to wise counsel, I was seeking advice from his word, but I just wasn't hearing anything. I felt like I was stuck. And during that time, I went to a a staff prayer meeting here at the Long Long Point campus, and I heard one of our pastors, Betsy Smith, talk. And she talked about being in a waiting room. So I thought it would be cool if if she could just share a little of her lessons with you.
1: I have an example of a waiting room that God designed just for me. It's not the hardest waiting room I've been in, but... I think the same lessons apply no matter what kind of waiting room God has you in. This was several years ago before I came on staff, and I was beginning to sense a call to full-time ministry, but it didn't seem like anybody else was getting that drift and to be honest, I started getting a little frustrated and spiritually dry and began to do all those things questioning whether I'd even heard from God about ministry, questioning if he was even paying attention to my circumstances and wondering if he loved me, and if I, even if I loved him enough and deserved to do such a thing. Well, right in the middle of all this, I took one of my um, frequent trips to Aiken to visit two of my girlfriends who had moved there. And while I was there, uh, one of my girlfriends took me out on her patio because she wanted to share her excitement that in her hanging plant on the patio, some birds had built a nest and laid some eggs. Well, the time came for me to go back to Charleston. And much to my surprise, I found myself behind the wheel, pouting and whining at God that That special favor, that special kiss that he had given to my friend had never happened to me. So I got back home, changed my little attitude, and decided um, to spend time journaling at my computer in the study every day. Only three days into my new habit of journaling every day, I found myself at my computer in the study, Just typing away and something out on the out out the window on my front porch caught my eye and I remember thinking that day no it couldn't be it couldn't be I've this has never happened but indeed as the days went by I discovered by carefully peering into that hanging plant every day that birds were building a nest and I felt kissed by God and I'll never forget how cherished I felt and how special it was for God to to bless me in that way. It took several days of construction, then days went by with no apparent activity. Then one day we discovered four eggs in the nest. The mama bird would spend hours brooding, taking a break when the sun was pounding on the front porch each afternoon in just a matter of days we had hatchlings they grew so quickly that I thought they would soon split the nest open so I knew the time must be close for them to leave it we watched from the window as they took tentative fluttering trips from the porch to the potted plants on the steps in just a matter of minutes they were gone from our sight following mama into true flight and freedom from the nest I'm delighted to say that there have been bird's nest planted on hanging in hanging baskets at my home ever since then, every year, and just the symbol of a bird's nest has come to mean so much to me, not only that tender gesture of love that God demonstrated to me in allowing that to happen so up close and personal in my life, but bird's nest has become a symbol to me of the waiting rooms that I find myself in. I need to keep doing what I know is right. Talking to God, reading his word, looking for opportunities right there in that waiting room for me to learn and to grow and to change. And that I need to be ready to fly when he nudges me from that nest.
0: So how do we change our perspective on waiting? Well, let me give you some truths about waiting rooms. The first truth is hard to share, but I think it's real important for us to have a a perspective. Your waiting room that you're in right now may be your destination. You know, we spend a lot of time and energy worrying about and waiting for what is next, and there is a possibility that this is what is next. That job, that spouse, that husband, that healing, that new direction may not be coming. This may be the destination. Now, God may move. God may heal. God may open up the doors. Amazing things may happen. Miracles may happen. It's, that is always, always out there as a possibility. But there is also always the possibility that they won't, that this is actually your destination. And we can spend so much energy waiting for what's next, that we miss what is right now. See, um, I have a friend that that emailed me this week. His wife has cancer. Um, She's had it for quite a while now, a year year or more. And they're doing chemo and radiation, but the doctors have said that if there's not something dramatic soon, that this is going, going to be terminal. And I loved his perspective at the end of the email. He said, God has been so good to us. We are thankful for the time we've had together. I told you a few months ago about uh, a pastor out in Texas, Matt Chandler. He's in his 30s, and on Thanksgiving he had a, uh, a, a seizure. When they took him to the hospital, they discovered that he had, had a brain tumor. Um, they did surgery. It was cancerous. Uh, the doctor said prognosis isn't good. They're doing... Aggressive chemo, aggressive radiation. But again, if there's no miracle, this is this this is going to be his destination. And Matt said this. He said, my hope is not in healing. My desire is healing. My hope is in God. Paul, while he was in a prison cell, not knowing if he would ever get out, not knowing that if perhaps this prison cell, it was indeed his destination, he said this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for i have learned in whatever situation i am in to be content i know how to be brought low and i know how to abound in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through christ who strengthens me if this waiting room is your destination how can you learn the paul the, the, learn the lesson that paul learned you can learn it be uh, The last thing that he said, through Christ who gives you strength, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So the first truth is that your waiting room may be your destination. The second truth, which is related to that, is that all of us are really in a waiting room. All life is a waiting room. Hebrews says that this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home not yet to come. You see, in the light of eternity, if we really believe in eternity, then what we do here on earth is just a brief period before our real life begins. And I can't imagine a thousand years from now being with Jesus and complaining to him about the two years that I had to wait while I was on earth or the 10 years or the 20 years. The reality is, is whether we live 20, 30, 50, 80 years, all of that is just a waiting room for what is next. A few years ago, we took our kids to Universal Studios, and I'd never been before. People had told me about it, so I was looking forward to it the first ride we went to was Twister based on the movie. And so we went back to that ride. I'd heard a lot about it. We waited in line outside the building. And finally, when we got inside the building, it was really cool. I mean, there were props like we were in Kansas all over the place and there were monitors up on the wall and it was like weather reports were coming in and, and there was like sound effects in the room and, and lighting was uh, flashing. It was really, really cool. And I thought, this is awesome. I'm glad we came down here. This was worth the price of admission to get into this. This, this is cool. And then I saw uh, doors opened. I didn't see that there were other doors. These doors opened and they moved us into the next room. And all I can say is all heck broke loose. I mean, real water started pouring down. Wind was blowing. A cow flew by. A cow flew by. When I walked out of Twister, I didn't go to anyone in the park and say, you got to see the waiting room at Twister. It is awesome. You know what I'm saying? Once the cow flew by, I really wasn't worried about what was going on back in the room before. That's what eternity is. We are in a waiting room. As good as it is or as bad as it is, it is nothing but a waiting room. The truth is, is we are all waiting for the real life that happens when this life ends and the door is open that we don't see now and we enter a room that we can't possibly comprehend and we go, wow. So our waiting room may be our destination. The reality is, is that we're all in a waiting room. And the third truth is that while we are waiting, we are on mission. We are missionaries. It's kind of like Atlanta. We are not home We are not at our destination. We are in between. And while we are here, we're on mission. There is work for us to do. I love, again, Paul from the Philippian jail says this. Then realize he's in jail. He doesn't know if he's ever going to get out. He is being held on charges that aren't true. And here's what he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do while I'm in jail, while I am waiting... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's circumstances never altered his mission. While he was in this Philippian jail, or or the jail in Caesarea, he wrote the book of Philippians. He wrote some of the greatest letters ever written while he was in the waiting room. When, When he went to Rome and he was held in a dungeon in Rome, he started sharing the good news with his guards who began to tell other people. Eventually, while Paul was a prisoner, some of Caesar's own house became Christians because while he was waiting, he was on mission. I have a friend who uh, recently went through a long period of time with his mom. Um, She recently passed away, and up to her passing, she was in a nursing home for, for several months. And every week, he would go two or three times a week to visit her in the nursing home. And sometimes she was coherent, sometimes she wasn't. And and it was just a time of waiting. But what he did is he got to know the other patients on the wing. He got to know all the staff on the wing. He became a missionary to that wing of that nursing home. And he prayed for everybody and, and just took care of that wing. That became his mission. You, while you're waiting, you're on mission. So let me give you, as we finish up, let me give you some real practical ways to grow and to, to, to um, be productive while you wait. The first thing we do is we look up. We look up. And that's about God. We look up through worship. We learn how to worship in a waiting room. Because, you know, a lot of times, here's what worship looks like. God, thank you for the things you did in the past. Please do these things in the future. And that's pretty much it for us. But that's not really worship. Worship is saying, God, you're amazing, you're awesome. And learning to just express our praise and our worship for God. While we wait, we can worship God just for being God. The other way we look up while we're waiting is, is learning to pray. See, James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. When things are going well, it's, we don't really learn much about prayer in those times. It's when we're waiting that we learn how to pray. I mean, we can do a lot to learn how to pray. We can read about prayer. We can talk to people who are great at praying. We can practice praying. How how do you do that? Go someplace by yourself and just practice praying out loud. Uh, Practice writing out your prayers. Take a scripture and practice praying through that scripture. Try singing your prayers. You do a lot of different things. While we're waiting, we can look up in worship and in prayer. We also look in. Looking up is about God. Looking in is about me. I can grow while I wait. How can you grow while you're waiting? Um, There's a lot of things that you can learn. Here's something that that, uh, a lot of us talk about reading the Bible. And that's all we do. We just read the Bible. And then we... Sometimes we don't get a lot out of it. And maybe we pull a verse here and we pull a verse there or we go back to our favorite verses over and over and over again. And the truth is, is we never learn how to study the Bible. The Bible is a thick, complex, um, um, rich book but you can't get at the meat of the Bible just by skimming the service and just reading it. You have to learn how to study the Bible, learn the context, learn about the authors, learn about the settings, learn about the culture that was involved. Really learn to study the Bible. And while you're waiting is a great time just to, to dig in and to grow and to learn. There's books that you can read to grow. Let me give you two books if you're in a waiting time to read. One of them just came out. It's called The Me I Want to Be. It's by John Ortberg. And it really helps you grow as an individual. And then another one that, that's been influential in my life in trying to hear, God, what are you saying during this waiting period? It's called Hearing God by Dallas Willard. Hearing God by Dallas Willard. And both of those will be on the city um, this afternoon if, if, if you miss that. But grow while you're waiting. So we look, uh, we grow, and then we can also, not only do we grow, but we practice. We practice. There was a, uh, a book came out a couple years ago called Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And he talks about people that just do amazing things in their field, like Tiger Woods in golf or Michael Jordan in basketball or a great singer or a great scientist or a great musician. And they said that they went back and studied and every truly amazing performer, musician, athlete, they found one thing in common for all of them, they had spent at least 10,000 hours practicing what it is that they were great at. We can practice. I know people who feel like, you know, I, I want to write a book. Well, how do you do that? Well, you practice. You write, you write, you write. Oh, I feel like God's leading me into a ministry. Well, practice doing ministry. You know, someday I want to be a parent. Hey, practice being a parent. We practice. We don't just sit and wait. We grow and we practice. And then finally, we look around. And that's about other people. You know, one of the things that anyone can do is anyone can be a mentor. Mentor gets this image of sitting in a coffee shop and having real deep questions and giving advice for what what's next to do in life and really guiding people through life. And, and there's an element to that, and th- that's a positive thing. But we're not all wired up that way, but anyone can mentor. All a mentor does is find someone who's not quite as far along the path as you are and just kind of help them along the path. Guys, we have 14-year-olds in this audience. You guys can be mentors to 13-year-olds. We have 20-somethings that would be amazing mentors for college and high school kids. We have... We have moms who have toddlers who would be awesome at mentoring moms who are just now having infants. We have guys who own businesses that would be unbelievable at mentoring people who are just starting a business. While we're waiting, all of us, all of us should be looking around for people we could be helping out. We could just be mentoring. And then as we look around, we also serve. Just serve. Just serve selflessly. Look for places. Maybe it doesn't fit exactly what you think you're supposed to be doing, but just serve. I have a friend here at Seacoast, and she's been praying for something in her life for a long time, decades. And she has stayed faithful, and yet this thing has not happened in her life. But what she has decided to do while she waits is she's decided to serve. And so she serves in ministry here at Seacoast, and then outside of the church, she serves our community. Uh, She serves helping disabled children. That, that need help. And she just serves and serves and serves and serves while she's waiting. So we look up, we look in, we look around while we wait. So how about you? Where are you at? Are you waiting for something in your life? Is there something that you're asking God for? Is there a healing or a relationship thing or a financial thing or... Or maybe it's just you feel like there's something else out there, something more, and you're just waiting for it to happen. What are you doing while you wait? Are you on mission? Are you a missionary in your circumstances in your waiting room? While you're a missionary, are, are you looking up? Are you worshiping and praying? Are you looking in? How are you growing? What are you practicing? Are you looking around? Who, who are you mentoring? You know, the worst thing that can happen in a waiting room is for me to become focused on myself, to become inwardly focused, because that's when I worry. That's when I stress out. That's when I complain. When I turn my eyes upward and outward is when I see real change happen. And if this waiting room is my destination, that's okay, because I'm going to complete the mission that God sent me to do. Can I pray for you? Father, um, I thank you for the mission that you've given each one of us. And Lord, I pray for those right now who are in waiting rooms. Lord, there are people here today that the waiting room is really, really tough. And Lord, we don't at all want to make light of that. Lord, I pray that you will um, bring them peace. Lord, Betsy talked about just a little sign outside her window, a bird building a nest, something as simple as that. was her sign that while she waited, you were aware. Lord, I pray in our hearts that we will just feel that sign from you that says, I can't explain why, but right now this is your destination. But I love you. I care for you. Lord, I pray that we'll, we'll feel that, we'll see that as we come to you. And Lord, I pray that while we wait, we'll make a difference in the world. Lord, we lift this to you today. In your name, amen.